I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to a show about big books and bold ideas. In the opening pages of Phil Cly's first novel, it is 2015 in Kabul. Many of the journalists who once covered the war have moved on. They've gone home. They're in some other conflict zone. But Lizette is still there for now, aware that it is increasingly difficult to interest readers in what's happening. When I first came here, she remembers, I was full of rage at the indifference most people back home showed to the deaths of Afghans. All these human beings suffering, dying, and fighting with unbelievable courage to live in this brutal country. Lizette is talking about Afghanistan, but that reality could apply to many of the wars that America fights and leaves. And we'll talk about that. We'll also talk about why fiction can sometimes tell truths that nonfiction can't, and how Phil Cly's own service as a Marine in Iraq shapes the stories he tells. Phil Cly is a military veteran, and his short story collection won a National Book Award. His new novel is titled Missionaries, and he joins us from Connecticut. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. So... I happen to be reading your novel in the midst of the chaos of the American withdrawal from Afghanistan, and Lisette's reflections, the journalist in the novel, about the indifference really seemed especially powerful in the moment. So suddenly, after years of, you know, Afghanistan slipping way deep below the headlines and into the middle of newscasts, if at all, Americans are suddenly interested again because the war is ending and we're withdrawing and it's a chaotic withdrawal. And I had a feeling maybe you had some conflicting observations as you watched the way this happened in Afghanistan. I'd be interested in hearing what they were. Yeah, I mean, I had a lot of conflicted feelings about that. I mean, on the one hand, there was a sort of ongoing disaster that was was worse than it needed to have been in terms of the evacuation, right? We should have been evacuating some of those people during the Trump administration. And when the Biden administration came in and knew that they were withdrawing and continuing to a fairly tight timeline for withdrawal, they should have put a lot more effort into getting people out. It was an unbelievably chaotic situation. I mean, people were people were getting Afghans through the gate by reaching out to Marines, like twenty year old Marines, through their Instagram accounts. You know, um, it was uh, you know it was just a, a terrible situation. And you know, I think as with so many things in the past twenty years of war, there were failures of government mixtures of sort of either incompetence or lack of planning or at points callousness that made things worse. At the same time, I did think and I did support the withdrawal. And, you know, one of the interesting things was that, you know, you had this sudden burst of of interest and a lot of kind of negative attitudes towards the withdrawal. And, and and I also thought a lot of fairly deceitful arguments being made about how this was, um, you know, uh, how we could have sustained things if we'd only kept a, you know, a few thousand troops in the country. I think that the, the collapse of the Afghan government made it very, very clear after 20 years, how little we had built with all that time and all that money and all that effort and all those human lives. So when you use the word deceitful, do you mean 
these were disingenuous arguments that the that the arguer knew were not were not pertinent to the to the reality of continuing forces in Afghanistan or do you mean the american people really did not understand how much blood and treasure we put into that country to support a very corrupt and basically rotten at the core government of of afghanistan yeah and it wasn't something that the american people were interested in um you know, the, Afghanistan wasn't even a subject during the last round of presidential debates That's that right. was talked about in, in, in any degree, uh, which is, you know, kind of crazy that, you know, we're at war and it's just not discussed. Um, and that was also, you know, that was the result of, of a series of political decisions, right? We decided to wage wars in a very, you know, relatively cheap way, heavily reliant on special operations, heavily reliant on drones and airstrikes. And Congress decided that they were no longer going to debate war, really, right? The, during the Obama administration, Obama sort of announced and had his lawyers argue that the, an authorization for the use of military force that had been created to attack al-Qaeda and uh, the Taliban could, could be applied to ISIS, which didn't exist then, could be applied to groups in Africa that didn't have much of a relationship uh, with al-Qaeda or pose much of a, a threat to the homeland. And so we've really sort of ceded the authority for war making and for killing to the executive. And I think Congress has been happy to do that with some exceptions. Um, you know, there are people who are pushing back on uh, and, and, and arguing for more accountability. And so, you know, war making continues in a very quiet way uh, at the behest of the executive and without, I think, the oversight that, that a republic that takes matters of war seriously uh, should be. Uh, you know, should be engaging in. I find this so puzzling. This is one of the most, I would think, consequential obligations of being a member of Congress. And I, I find it puzzling that they are, as you say, for the most part, happy to cede that kind of responsibility to the executive branch. I mean, do, is it really more about than the accountability that comes back and has to be borne? On these de- about these decisions? I think it's a mixture of things, right? I think there are some people in Congress who really think that because the, the nature of war is, 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 is a strange beast right now, right? Where, think, you know, sort of what is terrorism and what is war and what is crime all seem to blend into one another, right? And they think that the executive should have a great degree of flexibility. So there are, there are some people who think that. I also think that it's just easier, right, to not have to force the president to come before Congress and explain where we're killing people, why we're killing people, what it's going to cost, what, what the effect, you know, what the effect we're trying to achieve is so that, you know, we can actually measure whether we're making progress or, or not, um, and I think that that would put a lot of members of Congress up for difficult votes, right? Because these, these issues are often quite difficult. And, you know, nobody wants to be, say, Hillary Clinton, right, having voted for something that was extremely popular, as when she supported the Iraq war, only to have that come and, you know, sink her, her political fortunes later. There was also something I thought that was, um, that was rather unusual as news began to get out of what was happening in in Afghanistan at the end, Americans were hearing 
the stories of individual Afghan people. I mean, how they had put their families at risk, you know, to translate for an army unit or how a daughter had gone to school and that had really transformed the life of the family. And I've thought about this. We are not really accustomed to seeing the people who are affected by war as individuals. I I also think that's the case with immigration. I mean, that that seems right. It seems to be the tenor of the debate is it's a problem at all, and we don't think about individual stories. That, I think, might have made a difference to the way people paid attention uh, to what was happening in Afghanistan at the end. Yeah, I and I do think that there was some really great reporting throughout. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, that... that uh, that did try and bring those those stories in, into the American consciousness, right? Um, you know, uh, towards the end of the um, uh, you know the withdrawals, things were sort of going badly. There were a couple of journalists who were sort of who seemed to be trying to <laughs> to hold water for the Biden administration. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember, I think it was Josh Barrow and Matt Iglesias began mm-hmm. lecturing C.J. Shivers on, you know, failures of, of how the wars were covered. Uh, C.J. Shivers being one of the, uh, to my mind, greatest war correspondents of the past 20 years. Um, and it was just sort of kind of a kind of perfect irony of these sort of like elite journalists who haven't cared about the wars, not even knowing that the guy that they were lecturing um, you know, not knowing who he was, not knowing that, you know, their criticisms of, of, of lack of emphasis on civilian casualties, that he was probably one of the worst people they could be, you know, arrogantly, um, pontificating to <laughs> on Twitter. It was just, it was, it was a, uh, just kind of emblematic of, of a sort of, you know, arrogant kind of particular, cluelessness where you know the sort of you know they didn't like the way that the media narrative was going um but they weren't actually familiar with the people that they were talking to um and the kind of the kind of reporting that's been done um you know (laughs) that they could have you know they could have boosted for the past 20 years if they'd really been interested how do you think the way we and i i think i'll come back with to this a little later but the way that we think about, argue about, debate politically, uh, immigration and refugees might be transformed if more of us knew these kinds of individual stories that were captivating Americans' attention there at the end of Afghanistan. Now, that might be a lot to ask, and I know there is fantastic reporting on this, but it just seems to go missing in the consciousness of the political class and of many Americans. Yeah, you know, I think that um, when when Americans actually interact with these people, um, it's not just that they tend to have a lot of sort of positive feelings towards them afterwards. Um, but they tend to actually step up and help, right? Um, you know, I have a friend who exactly. had was I was talking to him recently, and he, and he said, you know, 
I think that a lot of times people don't know what to do, right? Mm-hmm. And so they, they'll want to help, but they actually need sort of good moral leadership at the top telling people how to respond. And in the wake of the evacuation, he lives in St. Louis, and he said, you know, like a lot of people, I'm not just talking about vets, like a lot of people have stepped up to welcome refugees, um, you know, joined to sort of welcome.us, which is one of the organizations or um, worked with or, or donated to Hearts and Homes for Refugees or, or done a variety of things that have shown that, you know, when they saw that people were suffering, when they saw that there was a crisis, they did want to respond. And if they were given avenues for actually responding in a meaningful way, a lot of people came out, you know, and that was, I think, uh, really powerful for, for him. You know, he's an Afghan vet. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and had, you know, in, in some ways had felt that kind of alienation from his country that is often, you know, often a lot of vets feel where they've, you know, gone to a war and have this sort of deep, complex emotions about that experience and come back to the country that sent them over overseas. And there, there's, you know, oftentimes a lot of friction in that. Um, and yet working together with, with Americans welcoming, um, you know, of all types, welcoming Afghans was something that was, you know, pretty powerful for him. Does the friction, do you think, come from not just an inability, but a real desire on the part of Americans to see the sides, you know, to to see a, a conflict like Iraq or Afghanistan in a very black and white, easy way? I mean... Because the veteran has been there yeah. to see all the dimension and getting home to explain that to kind of a lack of interest, I guess. You tell me, where, where's the friction come in? Well, I think it's just, it's an intense experience and often one that is really morally fraught, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the country that you're coming back to is not sort of a neutral third party. It's the country that you fought for. Right. And so when you come back, you have to renegotiate your relationship to that country. And, you know, I think that, um, oftentimes there are these kind of like overarching narratives about war that never really perfectly fit into the individual veterans experience. Right. Mm -hmm. And so figuring out how to, how to talk to people about your experience, how to make sense of what you you yourself were a part of and how you feel about yourself as an American and America now that you're back. You know, that's just, that's, that's part of a process, right? And, and, and how, how the people in your community respond to you is, is going to be really important, right? Uh, you know, there's a bit from Carl Marlantis, uh, who's a fantastic uh-huh. author of Matterhorn. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, uh, Vietnam veteran, uh, Marine, and, um, he wrote a book called what it's like to go to war. And in that book, he says, you know, if you ask the 20 year old combat veteran at the gas station, what it feels like to kill a man, his probable angry answer, if he's being honest is it doesn't feel like an effing thing. But if you ask that same veteran, the same question 40 years later, you might get a very different response. And the difference in that response is not just going to be about, you know, who the veteran was or, you know, uh, what choices he made, what he experienced, but it's also going to be about the community that he had around him. Mm-hmm. how they helped him process that, right? And that's a community of civilians as well as veterans. One of the things that you said earlier was Americans 
don't know and maybe aren't as interested in where and why we're killing people in various parts of the world. And mm -hmm. I kind of quietly added, and how? Because right. you've you've really written, wow, just intensely about drone warfare. But first, that overall question. We really are not cognizant of, I guess, or that interested in how we do this, are we? Well, yes and no, because I do find that people are interested when you talk to them. But I think that uh, I think that it, it kind of goes to that that need of moral leadership, right? Mm -hmm. Indeed, you need leaders who will actually engage with these questions in a serious way. One of the things that disturbed me after the withdrawal was Joe Biden gave a speech where he announced the end of the war, right, in mm -hmm. Afghanistan. And then in almost the next sentence, he promised that we would continue to kill people in Afghanistan using over-the-horizon strikes. Hmm. Well, what does it mean to not be at war and yet having continuing campaign where you kill people in a country, right? That to me sounds a lot like we're at war, right? Or something very close to it. And we're killing people in a lot of countries, in at least seven or eight countries, we're killing people directly. There are about four countries where we have special operators pushed down to a very low level who might be engaged in, in actual killing, but we, we tend not to find out much about what they're doing until somebody dies, like it's happened in, in Niger, uh, if you remember that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that politically, our leaders have made a decision to sort of insist that these things need not be so concerning or need not be a subject of political debate among American citizens. And I think that when, you know, the Defense Department is a huge portion of the federal budget, when we are killing people overseas, when that is a major aspect of American presence around the world, I think that is the political question that all Americans should be engaged in. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to my Friday book show. It's a conversation with Phil Cly. He's a military veteran, short story collection, won a National Book Award, and we're talking about his new novel, Missionaries. The narrative from the novel moves from Afghanistan to Colombia and the distance of drone warfare and its influence on the way that war is conducted becomes important and kind of ever more present, I guess. So as the narrative moves to Colombia, the distance of drone warfare and the influence of it on the way a war is conducted becomes more, I guess, more important. And Phil, you have a passage where you talk about kind of the the globalization of drone warfare. And, and I wondered if you'd read that to give us a sense of kind of what you're talking about there. Sure. Juan Pablo is at this point a mercenary, a uh, Colombian mercenary operating in the Emirates. Juan Pablo closed his eyes, took in the hum of the operations center. He wondered if the men who were about to die were capable of appreciating everything that went into their deaths. An American mercenary was aiming a laser at the instruction of an American pilot operating a Chinese drone. 
They were communicating over an encrypted frequency routed through a Canadian aircraft mounted with Swedish surveillance technology, bounced from repeater hub to repeater hub to the main air ground tower at their airbase in the empty quarter. The drone pilot, in turn, was communicating with an Emirati fighter pilot in an American aircraft, armed with a laser-guided bomb capable of being launched from nine miles away and 40,000 feet up and still detonating within 10 feet of its target. He heard someone clear the pilot's hot. Was it Jeffy? It didn't matter. He knew, as everyone in that operations center knew, that in another country, miles and miles away from them, men of another religion and another way of life breathed their last. They knew, and the ground team knew, and the pilots knew, but no one else. I mean, this this is fiction, but that's all true, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. How did you get a sense of how that how that is all connected. That's just mind-blowing. You know, that's why the novel is structured the way it is, right? Moving from Iraq and Afghanistan to Colombia and then over to Yemen. You know, the more that I wrote about war, and my first book was about the Iraq war, Mm -hmm. the more it seemed insufficient to just talk about one because it was very clear how, you know, tactics, um, ways of, of gathering and exploiting intelligence while you're hunting somebody, Right, that were developed in the hunt for Pablo Escobar, then moved to the Bosnia to Bos- Bosnia and are used in Bosnia. And then, you know, those similar tactics are used in, in Iraq and then sort of pumped up to an industrial scale. And then that same system for targeted killing comes back to Colombia. And we start helping the Colombians use that system uh, you know, to kill communist guerrilla leaders. And then, you know, Colombian mercenaries end up being heavily used in the Emirates, right? This is the world that we live in now. And so in order to write a novel about modern war, I had to write a novel about that kind of proliferation and globalization uh, of of methods of killing. When you were in Iraq, and what were the years that you were in Iraq? I was in Iraq in January 2007 to February 2008. Was the use of drones as commonplace as it is today when you were serving there? You know... We often talk about drones, and that became a much bigger thing under the Obama administration, right? So he used, I think, 10 times as many drones as as Bush had. But what had happened during the time that I was in the military, those sort of methods of, of targeted killing, right, which is not just about a drone, or a Navy SEAL team and sending them out to kill somebody. Mm -hmm. But it's more about the various different sort of intelligence services, technologies, direct action units, how you bring them all together to effectively hunt and kill people. That methodology changed. Um, And so from in 2004, Joint Special Operations Command was doing about 12 raids a month. By 2006, they're doing about 250 to show you the kind of scale of that. Now, a lot of those are being done by special operators. And, you know, when most people think about, you know, Navy SEALs doing a raid, like the Osama bin Laden raid, they kind of think it's cool. Mm-hmm. And when people think about a drone, you know, it's a, it's a mechanical device with no one inside. They think it's kind of creepy, right? But if you think about the sort of targeting system, those are just kind of the flathead and Phillips head screwdriver at the end of that system, right? That system was highly developed by the time that I was in Iraq. And one of the things that was sort of interesting was... I was in Iraq during a time when we were sort of trying to focus on coin, counterinsurgency. So 
what was going on on the ground sort of locally was the most important thing, right? It wasn't, you know, we said, you, you know, we're not going to win the war just by killing a lot of people, mm-hmm. right? You need to actually have something change politically <laughs> among the people. And so there was often a kind of conflict between people doing targeted killing, you know, coming into a region, picking people up, and the people on the ground. Because the troops on the ground who are trying to, like, make deals with sheikhs, you know, and local political leaders, if the rangers came in and killed somebody in that town, even if it was a sort of clean strike, sometimes that would unsettle things, right? Mm -hmm. And then oftentimes, you know, if there was collateral damage, that was very, very bad because, you know, like the Navy SEALs might come in. Uh, I have a friend who was in Paktika province and the Navy SEALs came in. They did a raid where they killed some civilians by accident, right? And then they flew away, right? The, the unit that was on the ground, they had to deal with the consequences of that. As you said, you know, I've got to go out the next day and try and sell Afghans on Jeffersonian democracy and have to be like, yeah, we're all about accountability and rule of law. And that's where these shadow ninjas came and killed your family. And there's nothing anybody can do about it. You know, one of the things that I was concerned with in the book and the way that it sort of, that I wrote it the way that it is, is I'm not just concerned with the kind of dramatic strikes, right? The time when we kill somebody, the time when we send a drone or we send an airstrike or we send a special operations team to, you know, fast rope down from a helicopter and sneak into a compound and kill kill somebody. I was concerned also, what happens in that community the day after and the day after? And so, you know, the novel... Um, spends a lot of time with like a kid from a, a relatively poor rural region on the border with Venezuela and Colombia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his life is sort of um, dealing with the consequences of acts of violence, right? The second and third order consequences that we don't always think about when, when we kill somebody uh, with one of these methods that seems to us so sterile, right? And so safe. That boy's life I, I mean, he is the one. I, th- I thought I would most identify, I guess, with Lisette, journalism, mm-hmm. kind of the awareness. But that boy, oh, my God, the, the things that he witnessed and understood that he had to do. And then the very mundane way that he kind of got out of it and the small ambitions that he had for his life and then the way he gets pulled back into it. I guess I wondered how you understood that kind of a, an experience so well to write about it. You know, I, I spent about six years writing this book and a lot of that involved just doing a lot of research, you know, um, reading a lot, but also, you know, taking trips to Columbia and interviewing people. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, trying to, to figure out what his life was like and, and what the kind of choices, um, you know, that he had before him came out of a lot of research, um, but also just sort of trying to imagine your way into that, into that perspective, right? Um, and into that world. You know, what do you do? You've got a relatively limited range of choices, um, and, you know, that he has in some of those situations. You wrote uh, an op-ed for the New York Times in 2014, headlined, After War, A Failure of the Imagination. And you say, the civilian wants to respect what the veteran has gone through. 
the veteran wants to protect memories that are painful and sacred to him from outside judgment. But the result is the same. The veteran in a corner by himself, able to proclaim about war but not discuss it. And the civilian shut out from a conversation about one of the most morally fraught activities our nation engages in, war. Now, I want to ask you about what that what that means in America. But I'm curious, given what you've just said about the kind of research and the, that you did overseas and the places you went, if you think that applies to those nations, too. I think, you know, I don't just think that we can imagine other people's experiences. I think that we should. I think we have an obligation to, right? You know, we, our actions affect others, affect others, you know, far beyond our borders. And I think that imagining our way into the experiences of people like Avel, right? Mm -hmm. Who's, who's, Who's the boy that we're talking about, the character that we're talking about. That's essential if we want to understand what it means to be an American, right? What we're doing around the world and and how we're reshaping the world through our military policy. I think that we we have to do that to understand not just the bell, but who we are, right? We're not isolated creatures. Um, you know, Abel also begins with um, this discussion of you know, of what a person is because he loses his family and his community at the very beginning of the book. And, you know, he says very clearly, you know, like we're not just flesh and and bone and blood and meat, you know, we're we're part to be a human being is to be part of a community. Right. Um, And, and so we don't, we don't have the option if we want to understand ourselves of only tracing our own wounds. Right. And our own scars. Right. We have to look out beyond ourselves and and try and imagine our way into other perspectives. You added in that op-ed, believing war is beyond words is an abrogation of responsibility. It lets civilians off the hook from trying to understand and veterans off the hook from needing to explain. You don't honor someone by telling them, I can never imagine what you've been through. Instead, listen to their story and try to imagine being in it, no matter how hard or uncomfortable that feels. I mean, your work does bring us into those stories. I I think in a way that even, I mean, this is why, um, you know, fiction about war, I think, is as powerful as journalism is about war. What do you think of that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and at the, you know, I think the highest realms of, of, of writing, I don't distinguish between them uh, in terms of, you know, what they can bring us. Right. I mean, I think one of the, the, the greatest books about Vietnam is, is Dispatches by Michael Hare. Right. Um, Why? Where he, you know, it's a, I, I, I quote in the book, um, like Lissette is, is talking about hair and, uh, another, uh, revered Vietnam journalist had sort of was talking about why he thought dispatches was the best book about Vietnam. And he said, you know, the rest of us, we'd go out, we'd be out in, in the jungle. And then, and then when we'd start to lose it, 
you know, we'd come back, take some rest, try and figure out where all the pieces were, understand the situation that we were a part of. Whereas Hare understood that the, the experience of actually like going nutty, right? Losing your grip on where things were, that that was part of it. And, and the kind of insanity of that experience is built into the very texture of the prose. And, and, and he says, you know, Hare donated his sanity to the cause of journalism. And the, and, and the journalist later, uh, the guy who's interviewing um, later asked Hare about that. And Hare said, yeah, I guess I did. Um, I think that, you know, what he gets at is, in that book is, I mean, I also just, the, the sentences are so good, but he's in, in a way that's not um, preaching. He's letting you into a kind of sensibility that's been shaped by this war, um, and that's what that's what really good writing does. It offers you a new, not messages, but a new sort of way of of, of, of perceiving something, right? Um, that you hadn't hadn't had access to before. You're listening to a conversation with writer and novelist. Phil Cly. The new novel is called Missionaries, and I'm Carrie Miller. I think um, you bring, I love these exchanges that happen between, again, Juan Pablo. We mentioned him earlier. He is a, am I right, lieutenant colonel in the Colombian yes. military? Yes. Mm-hmm. But he has this curious, somewhat wide eyed daughter, and he gets into these <laughs> philosophical conversations with her as she is learning you know he's giving her books to read and she then they're having these wonderful discussions about you know how she emerges from these readings and what her father realizes that she knows and doesn't know and he gives her uh che guevara's guerrilla warfare right yes and then he waits for her to read it (laughs) and she comes back with um, some observations that, what can we say, disappoint him, challenge him? How would you put it? <laughs> yeah, so he, he is giving her, he's giving her like a sort of reading list where he's, you know, and, and his diary, and Jay's diaries, where he's trying to like deflate the mythology of Che Guevara. <laughs> and he's doing this because she's going to, she's going to, the, you know, one of the best public universities in Colombia, but it's like very left wing. So he's afraid she's going to become a commie. <laughs> right? <laughs> and, you know, so he's trying to shape her education and her worldview. Um, and, you know, of course, children don't, uh, <laughs> they, I mean, I've, I've, I've got three, they're not teenagers, but uh, they don't, they don't just do and believe everything that, that, that you say. So she has a different, uh, she's, you know, she's, she has a different take on, on things. Uh, yeah, I just, I want to say one more thing here before you read this. They really, he, he's trying to school her on the idea of heroism and self-interest. And I love that. Yeah. You know, without completely crushing, uh, I think, a, I mean, something that she will learn as she as she gets older, that your heroes are not often who you think they are, and they're often quite self-interested. But I think he's doing this in a very gentle parental way. So that that short, short note to say that is why I really wanted you to read this excerpt, if you would. Okay. All right. So this is after she's, she's read his diaries in Guerrilla Warfare. 
He's actually quite heroic, Valencia said. I didn't expect that. I almost choked. (laughs) Who? Sophia said. Sophia's the mother. We were at dinner. Sophia had made one of my favorite delicious, tilapia veracruz. The sun was setting gently in the west, and through the window to my right I could see long, thin clouds blushing as they feathered over Monserrate. Everything was harmonious and orderly, except my daughter's mind. Che Guevara, Valencia said. Now it was Sophia's turn to choke. Papa gave me his diaries. Sophia raised one manicured eyebrow. To prepare you for school? Yes. Of course. She'd skim the dry tactics, but lingered on the drama of the diaries. How, I said, trying to find my footing, why, how were they heroic? The book I had given her did not describe heroes, but an incompetent, hurried group of 80 men crouched together in a leaky boat with bad engines arriving on the island late, two days after the futile Santiago de Cuba uprising they were supposed to take part in, and arriving in the wrong place a swampland where the unseasoned and undisciplined revolutionaries lost almost all their equipment as they trudged through saltwater swamps, developing open blisters and fungal infections on their tender feet. They were like nothing out of guerrilla warfare. They were filthy. They lost medical supplies and backpacks to the swamp. They let their ammunition get wet. And then, like idiots, they grabbed sugar cane from a nearby field as they marched and then tossed the cane peelings and bagasse behind them, leaving a trail a blind man could have followed. They make landfall, and they're ambushed at Alegria de Pio. It was not an ambush, I said. In an ambush, the attacking force selects the site ahead of time. They prepare the kill zone, wait for the enemy to pass. Yes, sorry, Papa. And then slaughter them with immediate, heavy, and accurate fire. I, a well-executed ambush is an act of premeditated murder and terrorism against strangers. In a well-executed ambush, with the right planning and surprise, the victims aren't killed in a fair fight. I just meant that it's truly incredible. They don't have the chance to fight at all. That was not what happened. Jay didn't walk into a trap. He was sitting around, eating a sausage. (laughs) This is true. By daybreak, the men were begging for rest. Their equally lazy commanders permitted them to sleep through the morning hours, after which they looked up to the heavens and saw military aircraft circling above. Even then, they continued peacefully eating sugarcane as the plane circled it. Imagine it. You've come to work revolution, and threatened by military aircraft seeking your death, you decide to suck on sugarcane like a child. (laughs) Phil Clive reading from his new novel, Missionaries. What does Juan Pablo want his daughter to understand about that? He wants her to understand that Che was not the hero that he's made out to be. He wants her to see that the sort of heroic image of Che is a sort of media construction, Mm -hmm. right? And in, in later passages, he talks about sort of the use that Castro put Che Guevara's image to after Che's death, right? Um, and so, uh, and that sort of, you know, guerrilla warfare as a sort of tactical manual, is, it's a very bad guide to revolution, um, as later revolutionaries sort of painfully learned. Um, and so he wants her to, uh, to see this kind of like, uh, you know, communist icon 
and 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 mock it right he mm-hmm. wants her to feel contempt for this man um because he thinks that contempt will protect her from ideologies that he doesn't like right and valencia is interested in in seeing him from a wider range of angles <laughs> and you know that is very much not in Juan Pablo's plan you know reading those passages made me wonder if you've spent time in Cuba I've, I, I spoke to people who've, who've been uh, museum there on the revolution but yeah. uh, no I have not traveled there myself so you but Che t- looms so large is such a uh, you know as a figure he does yes uh, I've been there mm-hmm. I've been to the uh, what the, the square the the huge area where they honor Shay. It's mm-hmm. so puzzling because, you know, all around are, it, it's not only tourists, by the way, that show up there. I mean, all around is evidence of that the revolution wasn't what Castro pretended like it was and said it was going to be. And yet, as you say, there is this continued mythology. Well, we do that too, right? All nations yeah. do that. The mythology is very important, you know, and, and Juan Pablo gives Castro, you know, credit for it, right? right. Um, you know, he thinks like this, you know, he was, a, he, he despises the man, right? Because he's a sort of, you know, somewhat right-wing military officer in the Colombian military. But he's, you know, he he, he thinks he was a man of genius, you know, right? Uh, in certain ways that he understood that like, you know, if you look rationally at, at Che as a revolutionary or Che as a writer of tactics or whatever, um, you might not be so impressed, um, but you know he says, you know, "Reason, whatever you know, true men of genius know when to toss this st- stuff to dummy of reason overboard, right?" <laughs> um, and he understands what appeals to people and what kind of narratives appeal to people, right? Yeah, I mean, he, you you have a paragraph here. Uh, Juan is Juan Pablo is thinking at the Museum of the Revolution in Havana. You can learn, I'm told, of how a small band of guerrilleros inspired the whole country, not just to revolution, but to communism. And because Castro held power, and because the excitement of liberation was still in the air, and because Castro was perfectly willing to jail or murder dissenters, the myth became history. And through Shea, it became tactics. Ah, so... So well done. You have to go to Cuba, Phil. <laughs> Find it interesting. Okay, so here's what I, what I'm curious about. So you teach fiction. You teach fiction, creative writing. What, I do. What, okay, I at do. at a university in Connecticut, at Fairfield University. Yeah, we have a low residency MFA programs. So we have, we have people from all over. But yeah, and I also teach undergraduates there. Okay, so um, tell me what what's on your. I'm curious about what you're assigning, and then I'm really curious about what you see your students reading that aren't on the assignment list. I, I want to know what these young men and women are interested in these days and what kind of literature they're going to to, to learn about it. Oh, man. I mean, it's all over the map. You know, my, you know I, I see my job as, as an instructor. It's not like, um, it's not to tell you, you know, here's the way you handle plot or, uh, or point of view or anything like that, but more about sort of exposing them to a really wide array of influences. Mm-hmm. Um, because and the thing about writing is, 
uh, you know, <laughs> there tend to be like a few ways to do it wrong, <laughs> but a kind of infinite number of ways to do it right. Um, <laughs> I love that. And, you know, so for me, it's more about showing them like, hey, like all the authors who've come before you and all the authors around the world are, are they've got tools that they've developed um, that you can use for your fiction. So read widely, read really diversely, um, you know, and, and, and learn to read analytically, um, you know, where you're reading other fiction and trying to pull it apart and see, you know, how does this work? So yeah, the, the wide range, wide, wide range of, of things. Well, what's on the list? What's on the reading list for your students right now? Some stuff on politics, um, writing politics. And there's a Egyptian novelist named Wagi Gali uh, who wrote a novel called Beer in the Snooker Club. And we're reading a segment of that. Oh. Caitlin Greenidge um, has a essay in the times called who gets to write what and then we're reading a little bit of her novel we love you charlie freeman which is a totally crazy brilliant book about a black family that knows sign language who participate in an experiment where they take in a, ch a chimpanzee who, who speaks sign language <laughs> in know, a I've town heard about this. Yeah. with this institute that has a sort of racially <laughs> troubled past, to put it mildly. Um, uh, you know, a little bit from, from the writer Bill Chang, a sort of long essay from the poet Tom Slay about the uh, poetry of um, uh, Wilfred Owen and David Jones. Uh, first World War One writers, so you know, kind of what a broad away, array of, oh, yeah. of of you know very different approaches, right? Which is you know that's that's how I like to do it. And so, so I like to ask this of um, writers who are engaged in the kind of instruction, the teaching that you are. What do you think about what ends up on high school reading list, middle school to high school reading lists? these days it is often the subject of some pretty mm. passionate debate and there are people that argue as you know that it just it it constantly needs updating it needs updating but it doesn't get updating so so what do you think it should be updated regularly right um i mean there's a million things you could put on the curriculum uh that would be great for people to read well what comes to mind when you say that Oh God! I mean, for high school students, you know, I briefly taught middle school. Oh, um, the wow. one thing that I didn't like, yeah, uh, briefly, briefly, oh. um, uh, just for half a year. But I had my own class; I was able to do whatever I wanted. Oh. And um, you know, a lot of the books that the school had had a kind of sort of like they were sort of YA books that kind of clunkily delivered messages <laughs> to the students. Uh -huh. um, you know, it's like this is the book that's going to teach you, you know, that X, Y, or Z is bad, which I found the students really bored by. So I sort of instead, I started actually giving them a lot of um, like great journalism, you know, mm -hmm. uh, just kind of morally complicated things as well as some stories and, uh, uh, and essays. And, you know, if you give fifth through eighth graders, which which is what I had, if, if you know, if you give them stories where you know there's a clear good guy and there's a clear bad guy i mean 
they can they see what's happening a million miles away. But if you give them like an interesting, complex story, uh, they really engage with it. So mother's Liberian immigrant living in Staten Island, whose son was getting into gangs and she was, you know, uh, you know, working jobs and, and wasn't able to sort of keep her eye on him. So she sent him back overseas to live with relatives during an actual civil war because she thought it would be better for him. You know, we had, and they, they thought that was fascinating. Um, Complicated. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I just, I like morally complex literature uh, because the world is morally complex because reality is not neatly didactic. And, uh, you know, so I think that that's, that's what, that's what kids need. You know, I think I'll, you know, like, I think that literature is moral instruction, but I think that we think sometimes that literature is going to be moral instru- moral instruction in the sense of like, you know, uh, you read a book and then know that, you know, racism is bad or you know that you know whatever it is um whereas what it actually is it's moral instruction and that it's plunging you into kind of moral spiritual psychological complications of real life and forcing you to grapple with it on your own right right? that's when that's when literature is 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 really at a tight you know um i don't i don't ever want to write a kind of didactic book that's going to tell you how you should think about modern war, though I have very clear, a very clear perspective. What I do want to do is kind of provide you with a rich array of characters um, whose experiences you'll find compelling and compelling enough that, that you'll want to grapple with those questions on your own. Mm-hmm. Is there Besides, a, yeah. is there a book um, on a, on a bookshelf in your house that, you know, is particularly well-loved. I mean, one that maybe you, you know, it's dog-eared, you pull for it when you're... <laughs> Do you have something in mind? Other than the Moser Illustrated King James Bible. Just, just a beautiful, <laughs> well, absolutely beautiful book. Um, uh, so I'm a huge Dostoevsky fan. Mm. Um, and I think that that, like, deeply morally complicated fiction that also respects the reader, you know, um, you know, Dostoevsky, his ideological opponents are always the smartest, most eloquent characters in his books, you know, um, there's a great bit where in his, I think in a letter, he's referring to the grand inquisitor chapter and rebellion chapter of, 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 um, the brothers Karamazov and he's, and he, you know, Dostoevsky was a very serious religious believer, but, in that book, Ivan Karamazov delivers this unbelievably eloquent attack on on God and religion. And in in one of his letters, uh, Dostoevsky says something along the lines of, "You know, the dolts have ridiculed my obscurantism and the reactionary character of my faith. They never could have conceived of so strong an attack against God as the one I <laughs> I wrote." You know, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Phil, thank you very much for for a wide-ranging conversation and for the time. Thank you. Phil Kleis' new novel is called Missionaries.